necessarily have to be writing a protest essay for me to protest something. You know, I don't have to be writing about resistance for me to resist something. And 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 I think the real power lies in choosing how we craft our stories and who we share it with, and and holding on to our power in that process and never compromising on our values, what we believe in. Welcome to our podcast series, Resistance in Color. We explore resistance as the way that we fight the challenges, structures that negatively affect spheres of our mental, social, and physical health. We hear from a host of BIPOC voices of community members featuring activists, healers, organizers, students. We will engage in how we resist, find solidarity, and gain insight on how to cope within our own bodies. The series features stories of incredible resilience focused on the healing of both individuals and communities as an active form of resistance. This podcast series has been made possible by the Fund for Safe Communities grant of the Minneapolis Foundation to NAMI Minnesota's Multicultural Youth Advisory Board. Welcome and thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Mai. My name is Pere. And joining us today is Saeed Shaye, a Somali writer who calls Minneapolis home. He is an MFA candidate and a graduate instructor at the University of Minnesota. He has published an Entropy, Diagram, 580 Split, Rigorous, and many other places. His debut book, Are You Bored Now?, was recently released by Really Serious Literature. It's an experimental combination of poetry, self-interview, memoir, photography, and Star Trek Voyager tribute. Thank you for joining us today, Saeed. Um, I guess we can get started with the questions. First off the bat, um, when we say resistance, what comes to your mind? What does resistance mean to you? Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and I appreciate the opportunity uh, to speak with both of you. Um, as far as resistance goes, you know, I think for me, resistance is just existence. It's living. Um, we resist through every breath that we take. Um, as, um, as people in this country who have, uh, how do you say, not the best experience, um, and often feel powerless in many ways. I feel like um, we don't necessarily have to be on the front lines fighting um, for justice or anything like that mm -hmm. to be considered someone who's in resistance. I feel like every every little small pocket of joy that you find, every little um, step that you continue to take, every flower that you stop to appreciate is an act of resistance. I think especially because other people would rather not that existence happen. So. That makes sense. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so tell us a little bit about, um, I was just sharing with my when I was reading um, your bio and published in this places, I was like, it sounded like a different language. So tell us a little bit about how you got interested in writing and some of these publications and this um, platforms that you've been able to use. Um, how did you get into writing? And I think maybe what was a source of thinking about this is what I'm going to be writing about. This is how I want to convey whatever it is I want to convey. Yeah, I mean, it is, to be honest with you, it is a different language. It's, um, it's a language that I've had to learn. Um, the, the literary industry and the publication world is, is very, it's very gatekeepy. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. It's very mysterious and, and, and hard for regular people to, to access, and I'm, uh, I don't like the term blue collar, but I'm somebody from that type of a background, you know, I'm, uh, 
Like, I'm, I'm an immigrant, I'm a refugee. I came here when I was young, but, you know, I still, my parents don't have a history with this country. My family doesn't, my extended family doesn't. We we just kind of showed up one day um, for reasons beyond our control. And it's um, it's not something that regular, everyday working people have access to. And it's something that I've managed to stumble my way into. And I've had people who have taught me, you know, the ropes about how the submission process works and trying to get into literary magazines and trying to get published. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of rejection and it's a lot of um, learning to believe in yourself because many of the people who are in positions to accept or reject the piece that you're submitting, oftentimes mm-hmm. they don't see the world how you do and mm-hmm. they don't understand the language that you're using, mm-hmm. which means they don't understand you and they don't understand your, your lived experience. And so it can be extremely discouraging for a young writer, a young artist of any kind yeah. to try and submit their work um, because you have to submit your work in order to get it to the mass audiences because that's where people need need to read it or yeah. see it. But it's hard to go through that because um, the people who are responsible for accepting or denying your work mm-hmm. tell you that it's quote unquote not good enough, mm-hmm. which is just another way of saying they don't understand it. And so the process has really taught me um, to fight for my work and to believe in my work, which is really just a way of saying believe in my worth as a person, W-O-R-T-H, um, mm-hmm. and that I deserve to exist, um, not just in life, but also in, in any creative space that I that I choose to um, engage in. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as writing how I got into it, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, something I've always had. It started out as reading. Uh, I needed an escape from from, from growing up in a big family and always being loud and I needed quiet spaces mm-hmm. uh, to reflect. And um, that eventually turned into writing. Um, I took a, uh, a short story and poetry class in community college in 2005 um, with Professor Mike Kiki, South, South Seattle Community College, where I'm from. Um, and yeah, that really exposed me to <clears throat> thinking about writing as something more than essays you had to do. Yeah. Um, or as writing is supposed to be anything other than your natural voice. I always felt like I was putting on airs just to be able to write because that's how I thought you were quote unquote supposed mm-hmm. to write. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, we walk into the class and he played for us uh, a video of an old slam poet, uh, Seiku Sundiata, and he's performing his piece. And this man sounded like he had a full symphony orchestra behind them, but it was just his voice. You know, oh. he's, mm-hmm. he's, he's out here just emoting and, 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 and vibing and, 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 and just the whole energy of it just felt so natural to him. Um, and I was like, that's writing? And my professor was like, yeah, that's writing. <laughs> and so I've been addicted ever since. Cool. I think it's, it's, it's also a cool process to see how things are taught, even even just art. I think we had a conversation recently. Please catch the episode with Maya to hear some more snippets about art and young artists. Um, but also when you're, I guess, be learning art, the way that it's taught, and then finding your voice within that. How did you find your voice within seeing the slam poet and seeing, oh, wow, this is, this is writing this poetry, and then discovering what's Saeed's voice and what's your uh, avenue and your platform? Yeah. Um... You know, I think mostly mostly trial and error and time. Um, it's it's something that I questioned. I remember when I was a, a much younger writer, I, I would write and 
that voice in my head telling me this is not actually writing and you can't write this and you can't talk about these things or mm-hmm. you can't use that type of language or those words that voice was very strong a long time ago and it's gotten weaker over the years but it's it's been learning to to avoid that voice in order to find my actual voice which is like just the closer i am to writing the way i speak in everyday life with my people mm-hmm. i think that's the closer to the truth that i get and i think that just comes with 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 time and repetition and just getting used to hearing my own voice on the page mm. i see you mentioned briefly that like you started into writing because you were reading as an escape since you were in a big family and so i want to ask like um how your family or your cultural background and like influences the work that you do it's just in there you know it's it's um yeah it is me you know um it's there are many aspects of the somali culture that i that i don't like that i've learned not to like um mm-hmm. and largely that's because i'm an extremely introverted person that enjoys quiet just by the water and you know um takes it slow and my culture is largely set up for collective activities community loud noisy gatherings um and those things don't really appeal to me and in fact they overwhelm me so i've always felt like i was an outsider in my own community um in many ways and so but there are many aspects of the culture that i do appreciate and like and I know that my appreciation of writing comes from that cuz cuz poetry is is very um <clears throat> poetry is a big part of of our culture um and I have I have grandfathers who were poets like well-known poets back in the day back home um but you know it's um it's it's my heritage you know it's who I am it's a big part of me uh, my faith and my culture go hand in hand um they're interweaved um and they 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 show up in my writing a lot you know and they've also been the things that have have helped solidify me help ground me and there have been times in my life when i've been extremely lost and and those were times when i wasn't as connected with my culture or my faith as i would have liked to have been but growing up in this country you know in this great american melting pot quote unquote <laughs> um it has a tendency to wash you away of everything that makes you you this place has a tendency to strip you of your natural elements it has a tendency to make you just another statistic mm. in so many ways mm. and so you know going back home for me was was critical to to my writing journey in fact i stopped writing for like 4 or 5 years because i was so lost and confused i was like i don't even want to write or perform anymore i used to be a spoken word poet and um people were like no we need you to perform and i was like no bro like i need to find myself i don't mm. know what the hell i'm doing right now yeah. you know, these words don't mean anything to me cuz right. i'm i'm swimming you know and i don't know how to swim and so <laughs> um yeah going back home and reconnecting with that culture with that faith with my language all those things like really sparked a flame in me um and and i started writing again after i i felt solidified within myself share a little bit about what that process looked like that process of reconnecting um of like you said going back home and finding that voice or finding the role of your voice or finding the inspiration or finding like the beginning of it it was uh it was difficult it was traumatic it was memorable it was fun it was beautiful it was uh 
everything you could think of. Hmm. You know, I, uh, it wasn't easy. For sure, it wasn't easy. I was I was down there for four years. I was actually just writing a note because um, I got uh, I got um, this book that came out, and I was hey. I was uh, about to go visit my family, and I was uh, I was gonna give them some signed copies, you know. Um, and I was writing a note to my dad, and I was uh, telling him in the notes like, you know, pops, thank you for uh, thank you for helping me go back home, you know, because he was the reason that I ended up back home, because um, I didn't because a lot of weird loopholes and paperwork being messed up um my citizenship journey was really unnecessarily complicated like i should have became a citizen in like 2001 but something got dropped along the way and hmm. long story short i only got my citizenship in like um well i only got my passport in like 2012 but before that i had a green card for like most of my american life um and so he fought like hell to go in and 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 prove that i was his son and my mother's uh, son um, and that they were married back home and that they came to this country with me and that all this other stuff and uh, he went through a lot of hoop loops you know jumped through a lot of hoops yeah and it took him almost a year to prove to this government that I was indeed who I, I graduated high school here went to college here and they're like yeah we still need proof you know <laughs> just so I could have my passport so I could leave the country <laughs> and this is in 2012 at the time I was uh, I was kind of stuck in place, you know, living in Seattle. I was uh, was going through addiction, mental health issues. I was, you know, dropped out of college, like uh, going from dead end job to dead end job. And I realized now I used to blame myself for it. I realized now a lot of this has to do with with trauma, with 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 a lot of deep trauma from my mm -hmm. childhood and and the everyday trauma of being a black man in this country and <laughs> all these other traumas stacked on top of each other. Um, and that uh, it was forcing me. It wasn't a lack of desire that forced me to go down these paths um, or a lack of willpower, but it was it was it was circumstances beyond my control. It was mm -hmm. pains that I could not bear. Um, no amount of writing could help me. Um, and so that's what I realize now. Um, but my dad was like, "Yo, we, we want to send you back home. You know, my whole family had moved except for me and him. Um, and we want to um, want you to spend like six months down there just spend some vacation time and you know at the time I'm an Americanized kid I'm like my Somalia is not my idea of vacation what if I die and he's like you could die just as easily here and I was correct like, that's a good point, <laughs> good point. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> <laughs> driving to Target to get a toothbrush might get pulled over and killed I was like yeah you're right all right, right. so um yeah he, he had that idea and um booked my ticket I, I was hesitant he was like I'll pay for the ticket six months what do you have to lose and I'm like I am cheap so <laughs> so, so, <laughs> that was what convinced me um and i went down there and um you know saying i was down there for six months turned into two years later two and a half years later and my family's getting ready to move back to seattle and they're like are you coming with us i'm like nah bro i'm i'm gonna go find a job i moved to Mogadishu, <laughs> the capital and i started working um with my uncle got a job down there and and, and was working there and i was like i'm gonna be self-sufficient down here because because uh, like for most of the time that I was down there I didn't have a job I didn't have any savings I didn't have any money I was just living with my family mm -hmm. and you know a lot of people would be like oh look at this poor broke bum who's you know saying like mooching off his family in Africa yes. to be doing it. and I'm like bro this, this is that was one of the happiest times of my life right. like, I had nothing I also had no responsibility but <laughs> I had nothing like I had no money nothing like that mm -hmm. and I was I was content I was satisfied I'm walking down the street and and the sun is shining and I'm smiling and the food is fresh and like you know, my parents made a great sacrifice for that, for all of us to be able to do that. Yeah. Especially my dad, he worked his ass off for that. 
because he was paying his bills up there in Seattle by himself in that cold, rainy, depressing place. And then he's also <laughs> sending us our money back home. And all we had to do was just, was just worry about what we're going to eat today. You know? I realized that was a great privilege. You mm. know? Um, and, um, yeah, that, that, that was, without that sacrifice, I would not have been able to do that. Um, but it was, it was absolutely necessary because without, without that part of my journey, without that reconnecting with back home, I would not be who I am today. You know, I would not have, I would not have done the things that I've done since I came back, since I left the country. Yeah. Oosh. That must have been a really cool experience, I think. Not I think. It definitely sounds like a really cool experience to be able to experience home, having not experienced it before or having experienced it before in a different way, even as an adult, and, mm. and coming into yourself yeah. in different parts in different ways. That is a really Absolutely. cool gift. Um, so were you writing while you were back home? Or what happened with writing during that period? Um, for the most part, I was not. I mean... I think actually I had I had notebooks that I scribbled in. Um, yeah, it was, it was not all easy, man. I was I went through a lot down there. Uh, mm. I was still struggling to recover from addiction. Uh, I was trying to reconcile my faith with my extremely sinful past. I was trying to, you know, I'm um, having breakdowns left and right, and you know, I was smoking weed for a long time, and that started getting me like to have like manic episodes, and mm-hmm. um, you know, just just drugs are bad, you know. Um, but then there was a point where I was like on, on antidepressants for almost a year and in Somalia, which I didn't know was possible, but you know, anything's possible. And, um, yeah, it, it, it was, it was a lot. I had surgery at one point. My brother had surgery. Like oh. it was a lot that happened, yes. but there was also a lot of beautiful moments. Um, and there were a lot of peaceful moments. And I remember my first, my first Ramadan that I fasted back home. It was, uh, it was unlike anything I've experienced before or since, and it was really, uh, I really, I could still remember the amount of tears that stained the front of my thaw as I st- stood in the front row, um, 3 a.m. prayers, um, getting ready to fast the next day on one of the last nights of Ramadan, asking for Allah's forgiveness and um, just making peace and also realizing that I had not forgiven myself for any of the things that happened hmm. for that long five to ten year stretch of my life where it was just one big nightmare um, and really just crying because I finally found a place where I, I recognized that I needed to forgive myself in order to move on. Um, yeah, that was that was one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. In wanting to find out the role you feel like your community, whether that means your family directly that were with you or the community, the wider community that is, that was home in Seattle or that was home in Somalia, um, kind of um, allowed you to go through, or maybe not allowed you, their role in, the, in your journey towards healing um, and recovery because mental health um, experiences in itself are a process and then the process of recovery is a process too. Speak a little bit to what you feel like the role of your community played to that process. They hurt and they helped. Because isn't that like humanity to be complex like that? Right. Um, they they hurt because they didn't have the language or the tools to understand that what I was going through was beyond just simple, you know, just stop doing these things that you're doing. You know, it wasn't like that a easy. choice. <laughs> exactly, it was not a choice. Um, and that was hurtful because you know, not just my family, but everyone in my culture, like they 
it's still something that people in my community are struggling to reconcile and struggling yeah. to, 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 to bridge the gap between the older way of thinking and the new reality. And it's not just a new reality. Like, we have addiction back home, too. We got mental health issues back home, too. Mm-hmm. It's just like, I've worked as a medical interpreter, and the language for, for, for addiction and for, for mental health issues in Somali, Somali language is extremely limited. So if you don't have the actual words to describe it in your lexicon, right. in your cultural lexicon, going to be hard for anyone to you know appreciate or understand or get support in the right ways yeah um so that was something beyond you know i mean saying like my people's control but my parents were were, were helpful i mean like they, they weren't too hurtful like they, they helped me in a lot of ways too like for example i remember one time in seattle um it's like two in the morning um you know i was broke i was waiting for the bus to go back home downtown and um I ran into this other young Somali kid, and there weren't a lot of Somali people I would run into in, Somali, in, in Seattle back okay. in the day. Um, so this kid, uh, he was like, he was like maybe 22, but he looked a lot younger. And, um, and we're talking. He asked me for a cigarette. I handed him one. We're just sitting there talking. You Somali? Yeah, me too. All right, cool. And then uh, he just, I don't know how we got to it, but he starts telling me about his story, and he's like, "Man, I've been on the streets since I've been 16. I've been shot, stabbed, jailed, like you name it, everything, everything, in and out of trouble." Like, barely clinging on for my life. Yeah. And I'm like, damn, bro, where's your family? He's like, they kicked me out when I was 16 because they caught me using some drugs or whatever. And I'm like, well, God, that's that's tough because my family knows what I'm going through. Right. They know I'm not coming home sober. <laughs> you know? And they know that's against our, our, our faith, that's against our culture, everything. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. Um, and they admonished me, and they would tell me to stop, and they would tell me I need to change my life, but they also had enough mercy to never kick me out. Yeah. And I would literally did not have a job and the only money that I made was enough to continue using and to go hang out with my friends mm. and come home in the middle of the night. Um, but they didn't give up on me. And I always look back on that and I know that I would not be here without them, without, without, even though as harsh as they may have seemed in their language when they're telling me I need to change their life, my life, mm-hmm. I know that it was coming from the best place at the same time. Right. You know, they're, coming, they're trying. Um, and so, yeah, and the going back home thing, like when I went back home, um, 2012, uh, was the last, let's see, that was the last time I used any hard drugs, um, last time I drank alcohol, and then I was still smoking weed and smoking cigarettes when I went back home to smoke it, but I was on the path to go back to using again, because I was, I was slipping, um, but before that, like, I was on and off, literally every name you can, every drug you can name except for heroin, meth, coke, weed, pills, mm. shrooms, acid, alcohol all the time nonstop. like i have friends who died of overdoses and so i was selling them using them everything you can think of um and all of this was an attempt to escape the incredible amount of pain that i was in yeah um and so going back home was part of that recovery process one because of the cultural thing but two because it's very difficult to change if you don't change your environment you know, mm. you can change your life, but if you're still in the same area, you know, even not just the people reminding you of pulling you back into those to those same pitfalls, but just like the corners where you stood, where you have those memories right. are enough to make you relapse sometimes. Yeah. And so I knew that I needed to change if I wanted to change. Um, so that was all part of it. And, you know, another thing is, too, culturally back home, even smoking a cigarette in the street is frowned upon like random ass strangers will come up to you and. And just start lecturing you. I'm like, bro, can I enjoy this one natural American spirit? Like, please? Like, come on, bro. It's hot out here. I came out here just to smoke this cigarette. I don't want to be here. You're a stranger. You're walking by. You go talk, you talk to me about 
you know, not, it's bad for your health. You know, you're so young. It's against our religion. I'm like, God, I'll put out the cigarette with you. All right, fine, man. So they're testing you into, into, you know, let alone anything worse than cigarettes. Um, so, so all of those things combined, you know what I'm saying, help me. And I realized those are drastic, drastic things. Um, you know, up, uprooting yourself and moving to another country yeah. that you don't have any functional memories of. I was born there, but I left there when I was three, you know. Like it's not an easy transition, but it's not. But it's one that I needed, you know, absolutely needed. Wow, thank you for sharing. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I'm wondering if like these experiences and this journey of healing comes up in your book, since it is like a、um, self-interview memoir type of book. And if you can talk more about your process of that book, and you know, just what it was like, what was going on through your mind as you were writing all that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they um, they do, they do. Um, I'm I'm kind of a, I'm like a crab because I walk sideways. I don't go straight. Um, so when I write, it's the same way too. It's very、ah. difficult for me to, to 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 face like I mean like by which I mean like I don't like face subjects head on.、Right. I don't take things on directly. Um, I sidestep around them because it's 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 much easier. Um, to talk about things that way,、mm. um, like it's 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 a lot easier to look at the sun out the corner of your eye than to stare at it directly. You know, so sometimes the material work with is is too too strong for for I'm very sensitive for me to bear.、Uh, so, you know, those things do come up, but the whole format of the book is、um, it's it's kind of like I talk about something, but I don't talk about it all the way. I start talking about something and then、mm. I pull back. I'll be like, "Hey, you remember that time when I was there and that happened?" And then, dot dot dot. And then the second person who I, who's answering the question is like, "I don't want to talk about that, bro." And then it goes back to me, and I'm like, "All right, that's fine." And the the catch is, both of these people are me. Yes. Me, my current self, interviewing me, my inner child slash the part of me that、um, helped me survive the traumatic experiences that I've been going through my whole life.、Mm. Um, and so. This format came about as a way for me to deal with trying to write about the trauma that I needed to write about, but writing it in a way that would not break me down in the present state.、Um, and and this just happened out of necessity. Like I, I'm not. I mean, I've been wrestling with the idea of how to write about these things for over ten years. Yeah, you know, I've had these ideas in my head,、um, and slowly they've just been unlinking here and there.、Um, Yeah, so some of that, some of that past does come up. It's, it's got. I got, I got pictures in here too. I got pictures of um, my immigration documents um,、mm. that I threw on here. I got pictures of my time in Seattle when I had long hair and I, I skateboarded and all this other crazy stuff. <laughs> I got pictures of like the Reform Saeed. I'm in my religious clothing and I'm in Mecca and Medina. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Doing pilgrimage and. I look all peaceful and clean shaven versus the old, you know, what I mean, street rebel that I used to be.、Mm. Um, but it's like all these stories are a part of me, you know, and they're all part of the journey. And I, I, I respect my current self as much as I respect my past self. Yeah, I respect my past self more now than I did when I was him. You know, it was, it was a lot of self hate going on. But I realize now I was, I was doing whatever it took to survive, even if people don't understand it.、Mm. Tell us about the title of the book. Actually, how did it come to be? What does it mean? Are you Borg now? Yeah, yeah. Are you Borg now? And Borg sounds like Borg, but it's, it's B O R G. Borg. Yeah. And the Borg are they're a、uh, they're a species. Nah, you can't really even call them a species. 
they're they're like this big giant entity um, in in the universe of Star Trek, uh, Star Trek Voyager specifically mm -hmm. is a series that I'm referencing in this in this uh, book. Uh -huh. um, and the question is, are you Borg now? Have you become Borg now? And the Borg, their basic mo is they are a they're kind of like white people um, because they go around from place to place colonizing and assimilating um, cultures and civilizations and they make them part of their uh, collective, you know, and they frown upon individuality and everyone mm. thinks the same and everyone acts the same. And all the achievements of that culture gets integrated into the Borg's quote unquote perfection. The Borg are a species ah. that are, that are, that are, um, they're they're fascinated with perfection they 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 worship perfection they seek to become perfect right and so they feel like everything they assimilate and bring into them is helping them come closer to that perfection but they're stripping these things of everything that makes them them in order to extract what the borg feel are of value to the borg yes and they don't look at what is of value to these individual cultures and mm. and, and, and species across the universe and so they're the big giant evil villain much like white people and so that sounds a lot they, like colonization they, too right yeah right it is absolutely colonization yeah um and so there's this character in there um are you bored now is it's, it's me asking myself if i've lost myself and have been uh, assimilated in mm. so many ways that i don't even rem remember or know what i was yes but there's this character called seven of nine um seven of nine tertiary adjunct of unimatrix zero one she is one of my favorite characters of all time <laughs> um because she was stolen by the Borg when she was like three years old okay. and she was raised by the Borg and she's been Borg her entire life but now that she's in her like I don't know how old she is but she's an adult now um, she gets rescued by this crew of humans who happen to be in their in their part of the universe um, and they take her away from the Borg and now she's a human again and now as an adult she has to learn what it means to be human mm. by herself um, when she have no recollection of it and so she's walking around acting and moving as a Borg, but she's also learning individuality. Right. And in the process, she's challenging these humans who know what it means to be individuals. She's challenging them on their own ideas of humanity. And now they're being challenged uh, because they, they feel like they, they had it all figured out. And this, this, this not a few weeks ago Borg person is now new to humanity and is questioning all their principles. And sometimes they don't have the answers for her. Hmm. Um, and so she's stumbling to try to find what it means to be an individual hey. separated from a collective. And I feel, I feel a lot of, uh, a lot of similarities with seven and nine story in mind, because I feel like I'm an individual that was born into a collective culture that I've never fully understood my culture and my people have never fully understood me. Mm -hmm. And I think we were just meant to be different. And I, I respect that difference, but, but like I've been stumbling to not shame myself for my individuality. Um, my entire life when everyone around me is like, you want to be a writer? Why? What are you going to do with that? Mm. I mean, are you going to be famous? Are you going to make money? And like, oh, you, don't waste your time with that. Why don't you become an engineer or a doctor right. or et cetera? You know, right. like classic immigrant dream. And I'm like, I, I don't feel happy doing any of those things. And this is one thing that I felt happy doing my whole life. You right. know? Uh, and I don't care about money. I never cared about money. We never had money. If I had all the money in the world, I'd probably give it away because it doesn't really mean anything to me. <laughs> um, like money does not motivate me. Status does not motivate me. Symbols, clothing, gear, like uh, brand names, they don't motivate me. Mm. Like, I'm motivated by the intrinsic values of life. I'm motivated by by, by bodies of water. I just have to say that was such a big brain analogy. I've never watched Star Trek, but it just 
Amazing. On point. <laughs> I relate to this character too. I like her. I like her. <laughs> it's interesting actually how even as you were speaking, I was thinking a lot of people might be able to relate to this character too. People who are experiencing things, I think even in many ways, not even just being an immigrant, first of all, being an immigrant in the US and experiencing this culture that's that's not yours, that has decided what you should be. But in any other facet, I guess even in as you were talking about um, writing and with all the gatekeepers and a previous conversation that we had with Mai that you should go listen to if you haven't listened to Plug, um, even as artists who are being told this is what art is, do this, and then discovering what your own sense, your own artistic nature is, your own voice is. I think it's, it's, it's so cool it can be applied to such different facets of people being able to come into themselves which really is a harder process than it sounds (laughs) yeah yeah it's life though we we figure out a way as we go figure it out as we go it's true reflecting on this past year and your experiences as um what as 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 a person would first view you as a black man um and with, with the pandemic that has just happened, oh, not happened, I th- we're still living in the panoramic, in the panoramic that we're still experiencing now, the inequalities that we've been able to see that have been, that just have been playing out. What what do you feel like this one year has um, been, um, has felt like an impact on you or on your work or on your writing? Mm. Um, slash has it made it better has it made it worse do you feel like some things are louder some things are no this doesn't make Mm. sense anymore what do you feel like this past year has done to you and your process and your work yeah Um, well first of all I don't I don't personally subscribe to the idea of better or worse writing Um, our ideas one of my mentors Doug Kearney taught me um, and I've always believed it in my own way um, but that our ideas of what good writing is often change even with our own writing Mm. Um, what we like today one year from now we might hate and vice versa and we don't know why so it's it defeats the purpose of creating art to try and put a value judgment on the art uh, Mm. for me personally and that's something that's always been a guiding light for me um and and so has my has my art been made better or worse by the pandemic i don't know (laughs) it's been made difficult you know um it's been made difficult and it's 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 forced me to shift um before the pandemic happened, I was, I was an essayist. Like I wrote essays. I wrote first-person memoir essays, very specific types of essays. And mm-hmm. I only wrote those, and I loved writing those, and I read those, and that was my life. <laughs> but those type of essays take a lot out of you, um, mm. and they force you to, to dwell on very uncomfortable topics, um, and they force you to interrogate yourself and the world in, in very often very painful ways. Yeah, and so. It was hard enough to do that in a regular world, quote unquote. But when then when things shifted, and for the first three months of the pandemic, I did not leave my house. My my hair was a mess. I was red eyed. I was scared. My roommate still worked at a hospital, you know. And at mm. this time, I could work from home because of school and everything. But my roommate worked at a hospital, so he's out there every day interacting with people, and mm. I'm scared for my life. Yeah. You know. Um. And so yeah. Like just the everyday, the the pressure and the pain of living increased tenfold because of the panoramic, the the Panamera, the uh, the pandemonium. You know, what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> the Panda Express. <laughs> there it is, <laughs> the Panda Express. And so, 
<laughs> and so um, I realized that there's no way, like I stopped writing at one point. I, I couldn't do it, you know, and, and this created an issue because I was in I was in my graduate nonfiction courses and they're expecting me to produce these long essays. And I'm like, bro, I cannot do it, especially cannot write about the trauma that you expect me to write about. Mm. It's not happening. You know, so I ended up shifting my whole major from nonfiction to poetry um, because I, I started out in poetry and I hadn't written poetry in a long time. Um, but like I found that poetry was the only thing that could come out and it was the only thing that helped me make sense of what was going on because mm-hmm. I didn't need to explain and break down and understand things in the way that you have to in essays. Right. Um, in poetry, you can write whatever the hell you feel like and say, this is a poem. I could write a short story and call it a poem and people would believe it because <laughs> yes. that's poetry. And yes. I love that. <laughs> so... So the expectations were lowered, you know, um, and, and, and my writing style shifted um, um, back towards this natural form, which is what I first originally started out in. Um, and I, I used to do a lot of free form, free verse poetry that didn't necessarily rhyme, that didn't stick to um, 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 a, a poetic form, yeah. like a, a sestina or a limerick or a, or a pantoum, or a, it didn't fit, like, or a haiku. There was no rigid form. I've never liked boxes. I've never liked rigidity. I never like like forcing myself to fit into something. That's 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 why I have a hard time buying clothes, and that's why I have a hard time writing traditional poetry. You know? <laughs> um, and so 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 when I came back to poetry, um, it had an essayistic feel to it, but it was not essay, and it was very short. It was condensed. It was compact. But I still found a way to say a lot, you know. And I still found that when 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 you're in the most pain, when you're when you're feeling not necessarily just pain, but when you're feeling the deepest level of emotions that it is possible to feel as a human, yeah. and those emotions feel overwhelming, you don't need a lot of words to describe that level of emotion. Mm-hmm. Sometimes poetry allows you to say it in so few words, but with so much depth. Yeah. Um, and that was something that I, I really needed. You know, Writing has, first and foremost, always been a means of survival for me, a means of catharsis for me, mm-hmm. a means of, 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 of worship for me. And and allowing myself to reconnect with that that poetic um, um, part of myself uh, helped me help me weather the storm um, of all this change and all this pandemic and you know what I mean. Hmm. It's interesting too uh, if I think about the panoramic um, and the period of time that we've had and the things that it's it's been able to shift. I mean, there's a lot of things we've hated about it, but I think there's been some blessings in disguise during this period uh, for lots of people reflecting now too about what's that been like what that's been like what? absolutely I, I mean i i don't i i don't like people i don't like going outside i don't like <laughs> public spaces I, I don't like interacting with strangers like uh, imagine what going to class is like for someone like me oh my god are you kidding me so people were like, oh, how are we going to live in this new reality? I don't leave the house. I'm like, you all are living Saeed right now. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. The tables have turned and now I have the advantage. And like, I can't wait till we go back to in person. I'm like, I cannot. I cannot. Bro. I'm working <laughs> remote for the rest of my life if I can help her. Are you kidding me? This is beautiful. I go to a coffee shop, sit in a corner. Nobody bothers me. I come home. Mm-hmm. I go to the river. I go to the lake. I drive by myself. That is my life. I water my plants. That is my life. I don't need much. You know, I play my video games. You know, I might see a friend every once in a while. We'll have a four-hour deep conversation. And then I don't need any socializing for another two months. You know, so the panoramic has been beautiful in that way. For sure. <laughs> I feel that. I feel that. I love what you said about, like, how writing is neither good or bad. And, like, I feel like artists are 
specifically writers, can be very like self-critical. Mm. So it was really nice to like hear you say it for yourself and for others that like writing is either good or bad. It's like uh, just a perspective. And so like, um, what are your future plans for your work as a writer? Like, what are you aspiring to do? Like, where do you want writing to take you? Yeah, like thinking in the brain, trying to take over the world. That's about it. Man. Come on. Um, <laughs> No, <laughs> no, I have no world domination plans. Um, man, I would, I would like for my writing to take me places where I can work on my tan. That's about it, man. That's, mm. I don't. Uh, that's, that's a joke. If I'm, <laughs> so, I don't tan. But um, it's uh, my, my future plans for the work is, is is to just keep writing, man. To just, I'm, I'm very, very, extremely grateful um, that my writing has managed to reach people. Um, because writing, before it was writing, it was reading for me. And reading is what saved me for so many years. And so people are, are getting even an ounce of saving from my work, from, from the words that helped me survive, it was helping other people to survive. As far as I'm concerned, I don't need any money. I can die happy, bro. That's, that's more than good enough for me. That's, mm. You know what I mean? Um, I could not ask for that in 10 lifetimes. Um, but but I believe I believe in, in, in the power of literature, of art, you know, to subject it, not subject it, to subvert. Yeah. to subvert this world and its and its, and its power structure um, and I don't necessarily have to be writing a protest essay for me to protest something you know I don't have to be writing about resistance for me to resist something yeah and 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 I think the real power lies in choosing how we craft our stories and who we share it with and and holding on to our power in that process and never compromising on our values what we believe in, we live in a very difficult world, um, a very uh, a world that's 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 like the lines are drawn very very strictly, yeah. and it seems like the, the walls are going up higher every day. And so, um, I believe that not just as writers, but as artists, as people, like we owe it to ourselves to to be true to everything that we are um, in every single word that we write, in every single um, dance that we dance, and everything else that you can think of what I hope for my writing to do in the future, man, save lives. That's my biggest goal. Mm. Save lives. You know, I want my writing to do for other people what other people's words have done for me. Yeah. What people who have, I was having a mental breakdown and, you know, I'm in the psych ward and one friend comes visits me and drops off a pack of cigarettes, even though cigarettes kill, that's love, you know, because <laughs> I was smoking at the time and I needed it, you know, um, and just to come by and, and say hi and talk with me, you know, um, if, if my words can be that pack of cigarettes in a good way for someone, <laughs> Um, you know, um, don't smoke kids, but <laughs> it's, um, yeah. And I don't know where it's going to take me. I don't know what it's going to do. Um, mm. I'm, I'm grateful for the journey. I'm grateful for the opportunities mm. and yeah, just hope for the best. Inshallah. I'm interested in hearing if you've met people who've interacted with your work in the little portions of art I think I've interacted with. Sometimes I will interpret something that's so off from what the person intended it to be. Or sometimes I will really feel moved by this one thing. And when I speak to the person who created it, they're like, exactly, that, that's what I was hoping. I'm glad that you're experiencing whatever emotions that are coming out from this, that you're asking and fighting for yourself to kind of understand the work. Have you met people who've interacted with your work and how have how has that experience been? Hearing from them, how they viewed your work or interacted it or what it meant to them? Have you kind of had that experience? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been good and bad. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, um, 
the, the thing about I've done it myself too, so I I understand why people do it. But like, we have a tendency to equate the art with the artist. Like I met this writer one time after having read her book. Love the book. Yes. Met her in person. I thought she was going to be exactly like this book, you know, because um, the book was nonfiction and the way she wrote, the way she made jokes. I was like, oh, this is who she is. Yes. But I didn't realize that she wrote this book like three, four, five years ago or something, and she's a completely different person now. Mm-hmm. Even if the book just came out today, the time the writer wrote it was probably over a year ago at least. The time it takes to get it published and editing and this whole thing, we change as humans. And even if it's something I wrote this morning, the art does not necessarily define the person, not even a smidgen of who this person is. Yeah. People are complex, multifaceted beings. Um, and so it can be very difficult to separate the person who produced the art from the art itself and to not not project the art onto the artist. Um, it, it's gotten me into trouble a lot of times and it's gotten other people into trouble with me because I'm like, bro, like, you don't know me. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> like, don't talk to me that way. Like, I'm not that person. Mm. Um, don't jump to conclusions about who I am as a person based on one piece of work that you read about me. Um, right. And, and it's something that I have to fight for and uh, something that I have a very short fuse with. But but it's it's definitely it's been beautiful to meet people who have been moved by the work, mm. um, who relate to the work, especially in my community, um, in the larger Muslim community and specifically within the Somali community as well, um, because there are many, many things that are too taboo to talk about. Right. Um, mental health, addiction. We're supposed to be these pious, perfect Muslims that never have any breakdowns, that never have any, of course. you know what I mean, slip-ups. And, yeah, we're just going to walk straight into heaven. Like, if that, if it was that easy, this would not be earth and it would already be heaven. You know? right. We're here to be tested. And we're going to fail a lot of those tests. And and, and and the lesson is in how we how we recover from the test and what we learn from the test, not in the fact that we failed in the test. Um, the failure is actually a victory in that yeah. regard. And And so people will say to me they'll even be like i couldn't like your facebook post but i resonated with it so much i didn't want anyone to see me like that post i'm like that's bad bro we can't even like a post for fear of what people will think of us right let alone say what we need to say right right um but a lot of a lot of people in my community um have reached out to me um and have told me you know i mean like what my words have meant to them um, to keep doing what i'm doing even though they can't publicly support it, hmm. um, but it's it's like a weight off their shoulders because they're like you're thinking what I what I've been thinking my whole life and I never had the words for it until you said it, and that's not necessarily just like that's not me being an amazing writer. That's just me wrestling with these same things and and really just being too different to care enough about what my people think about me because a big part of being Somali is being focused on what other people think about you. My people are gonna hate me for saying all this. I'm giving out all of our <laughs> secret recipes. Spilling all <laughs> but the it's tea. okay. I was already. <laughs> I was already an outcast, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Call me Andre. So, no, but it's real. It's so real. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's been beautiful, though. It's been beautiful to see that. Not just Somali people, too. People in, in, in the wider community um, have resonated with the work. Um, and all I can ever say is I don't have any words to say to you besides thank you. You know, it's, it's heartfelt. You know, mm. it's, it's a beautiful thing. I think it would be a shortcoming to have this conversation and not allow you to speak to some of the people who might be in that place or might be resonating with some of the things that you shared, some of the challenges that you shared, some of the stigma within their different communities, some of the, we don't talk about these things, why are you talking about these things? We don't, we don't share these things, why are you sharing these things? We don't believe in these things. And one of the things that the board is interested in 
this board is interested in doing that kind of created this platform is to highlight mental health illnesses um, challenges and wellness especially within cultural communities and how they look like calling out some of the stigmatizing language because that prevents a lot of people from speaking out about what they might be experiencing which then allows addictions to fester or illnesses to fester before people are able to seek help or think that they're able so people are escaping through different platforms that might not be writing that might be very harmful to themselves um and so maybe for our listeners who might be um, experiencing some of these challenges in whatever facet whether that's if that means they are currently experiencing um uh, they're being silenced for the things that they might be feeling. They might be experiencing trauma that they, they don't even know that they're experiencing. Or they might be escaping through substance abuse and substance um, use that they don't even realize that they're doing to fix something that they don't even know what the problem is. Um, share a little bit to those people and what you would say to them into kind of finding finding what might be happening within themselves or finding help or finding an avenue that might not be harmful to them speak a little bit to those people what would you say yeah do you mind if i recite a verse real quick that speaks to that and then answer the question go ahead i will be nahim in a shaymanim rajeem ما ونبعك ربك وما قلا وللآخرة خير لك من الأولى وللآخرة خير لك من الأولى وللسوف يعديك ربك فترضى ألم يجدك يتيما فآوى ووجدك ضالا فهدى وَوَجَدَكَ عَائِلًا فَأَغْنَى فَأَمَّا الْيَتِيمَ فَلَا تَغْهَرْ وَأَمَّا السَّائِلَ فَلَا تَنْهَرْ وَأَمَّا بِنِعْمَةِ رَبِّكَ فَحَدِّثْ So that is a, um, a verse in the Qur'an. Um, called Abduha, the morning hours. Um, the translation is, by the morning sunlight and the night when it falls still, your Lord has not abandoned you, nor has he become hateful of you. And the next life is certainly far better for you than this one. I repeated this, this, this verse a twice. And the next life is certainly far better for you than this one. And surely your Lord will give so much to you that you will be pleased. Did he not find you as an orphan and sheltered you? Did he not find you unguided and guided you? And did he not find you ready? Did you and did and did he not find you needy? Then satisfied your needs. So do not oppress the orphans, nor repulse the beggar, and proclaim the blessings of your Lord. And this is a verse. Um, this is, um, I guess, a chapter of the Quran that has always helped me weather very difficult storms, um, and to remind me that I'm not on my own. That. I wasn't brought. I was brought here for a reason. And there is a higher purpose to all this. Um, I think. I think we get caught up in trying to fix ourselves too much. I've been around a lot of addiction and recovery spaces, 
um, and even in mental health spaces, the language I've found has always been off-putting to me. Mm-hmm. You know, while largely helpful these places can be, the language and the approach has been harmful to me personally, and I think to other people struggling with things, because it places the burden on the individual. It says, do this, do that, do that, and mm-hmm. then you will be a good person, or you will be fixed. Um, work on yourself, and then you will be fixed. And absolutely, I am not discrediting the need to work on ourselves. Um, but I, what I posit is that one of the core tenets of addiction, of mental health, all these things that are stigmatized, is shame. And shame is a very powerful drug. It could even be argued that the shame itself is one of the largest fuels for the addiction. Um, And so a lot of this language that tells people, go to this therapy, do this worksheet, Mm. try that thing, enter this facility, Mm. and then you will be fixed. It's it's shameful because like I if I just do this this is all my fault I caused this issue onto myself and therefore I have to be the one that fixes it so that I can be a productive member of society quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no room in that narrative for the harms that society has done to this person to right. force them to seek to escape the pain that they're in. You know, and it takes a village to raise a person. It also takes a village to break a person. Mm-hmm. And how can we expect a person to undo the damage that an entire society, an entire culture, an entire world has done to them over the course of a lifetime? Yeah. Um, I think my biggest, biggest, biggest piece of advice is self-compassion and patience. Like, you are where you are in this journey. You are exactly where you're supposed to be. If I go back in time right now, um, I remember years where I just beat myself up and I'm punching walls and I'm like... I just have to fix myself. I just have to stop doing these things and then my life will be okay. I have stopped doing those things. My life is not necessarily okay all the time. Mm-hmm. That's life. Life has ups and downs. It's, it's challenging, man. Right. You know? Um, but I think no matter what it is that you're using to escape, like, try to be safe about it and, and try to be kind to yourself and just do your best. Like, like God does not want you to punish yourself any more than you already being punished by the world for the things that you have to endure Mm. you know this life is not easy for a lot of us for any of us really life is difficult but that 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 verse that verse that chapter (laughs) um that chapter really really reminds me that no matter how many times i felt lost and unguided and abandoned and left to my own devices uh, allah was right there with me god was right there with me holding me down and my family was right there with me even if i didn't understand the ways that they were trying to help me Mm -hmm. um and even for those who feel completely abandoned and alone, I promise you there's always, hopefully, at least one person who cares enough about you that they're trying to help you. Um, so don't be too big to reach out for help or to accept help when it's offered. Um, be kind to yourself. Do your best. You already are, man. And and don't think about trying to make something of yourself, man. My friend used to tell me this all the time. Like, Saeed, you don't have to be anything. You don't have to make yourself, make anything of yourself. You already are something and a pretty mm-hmm. special thing at that. And I say that to all my friends. Like, you do not need to be anything. It ties in with art and this need to 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 measure it and to and to say this is good art or bad art. Um, that comes from capitalism, man. Like this production culture that we live in. Like, we we are a lot of the times this language that we hear is like fix yourself so you can go get a nice well-paying job in a copy machine like, yeah it's not life man <laughs> i know lots of people that have a lot of money and they're not happy yeah you know? so so more money more problems but also like you know people 
people who who are have no problem just plugging themselves into these exploitative systems that we are oftentimes subjugated by they they have no qualms they don't have anything to worry about they just kind of go on but that is not they're not living they're just existing mm-hmm. you know and and i i find i find much more hope from people who are struggling to overcome addiction people who are struggling with everyday mental health issues with chronic debilitating diseases with disabilities all these other things I find that they have a more real experience of this life in this world. They have a more empathetic and emotional and heartfelt experience mm. and can relate to other people than people who have it all figured out, quote unquote. Right. Some of those, some of the most broken people I've ever met are also some of the most successful, but the world just praises them. And some of the most um, beautiful people I've ever met are some of the ones that the world says are the most broken. But it's, it's, it's a bizarre world. It's upside down, man. <laughs> upside down. You put us in like a zone with your words and the rest. You put us in a zone, a thinking zone. Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for being here and for lending your voice to our conversation. Um, to our listeners, I hope yeah. you're resonating with some of some of um, what Said is sharing today. Please tell them where they can find your work, where they can find your book, so that they can yeah, yeah. with a plug. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can. Um... You can, you can, I have a website, saidshaiye.com, S-A-I-D-S-H-A-I-Y-E.com. Um, there you can find my blog as well as a list of my um, published work. Um, as far as the book, you can, you can buy the book online anywhere. Um, mm. It's called Are You Borg Now? Are You B-O-R-G Now? Question mark. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, um, it's put out by my publisher, Really Serious Literature. Uh, out of Seattle, shouts to Chris Barracuda, um, and yeah, um, you can basically look at that anywhere. Bookshop.org um, is a really good one. Um, if you Google it, it'll come up. Yeah, and if you can't find it, you can go to my website, and there's a link for it in my website as well. Cool. Yep, yep. Find his book. We've plugged you in, guys. Find it. <laughs> find his work. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again for like sharing your experiences and your journey and of course like your words of wisdom and reflection and all that. <laughs> thank but, you. Uh, thank you so much. And thank you for the amazing questions that you asked. You two are both extremely helpful facilitators. Uh, this I, I I can't come up with things on my own. So it was really beautiful to have that to bounce off of you guys like that. Cool, cool. Well thank you and thank you for listening, everybody. Catch us on our next episode. Bye bye. Visit NAMI Minnesota online at namimn.org. All music loops used in this episode came from the song titled The Way, produced by Mike Lighty and made available through a Creative Commons license. Mike Lighty's music can be heard online at soundcloud.com forward slash Mike Lighty. Lighty is spelled L-E-I-T-E. For information about the Creative Commons license and additional links to Mike's music, including the full version of the song The Way, Please see the podcast show notes for this episode.